WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, editor and publisher of Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. Later in the show, we'll check in with two of our state representatives, Andy Shore and Sam Singh. We're also going to talk to a comedian who wants to teach you how to be funny. And uh, Jay Kaplan from the ACLU will be uh, on the phone with us to talk about that very important same-sex marriage uh, trial going on in Detroit. First up, though, our man of the week who's on the cover of City Pulse is Harry Hepler, and it's because he's got a great new project, uh, and we're going to talk to him about that right now. Harry, welcome to City Pulse. Good afternoon, Burl. Harry's a a developer. He did the magnificent uh, Motor Wheel Lofts project and uh, of course has uh, done other things prudent place is uh, his baby is uh, prudent the uh, prudent, prudent center, tech center uh, yeah. tech prudent center tech is his center, place yeah. prudent the place prudent is building. next door to everything he's done but he's got an idea for uh, a, a really a groundbreaking project for lansing that might also help put lansing on the map in a whole different uh, way. Harry, uh, you want to do prefab housing, and when people hear prefab, they think of trailer parks, but yeah, what they, you're talking about is really different. Yeah, with nothing wrong with trailer parks. Yeah. I used to, I grew up with them behind Tom's Party Store in East oh, Lansing, okay. Michigan, until I was four <laughs> years old, but uh, certainly as uh, trailer parks age, they don't ha- require, uh, yeah, have really good As we can see in South Lansing right now, life at Riley. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think uh, there's some negative connotations out there with prefab and modular housing. And really, the modular housing is is moved to uh, what's called structural insulated panels. And they're pre-constructed indoors and they're brought to the site and assembled in a specific order. And that's being done on a regular basis today and has been being done on a regular basis. Uh, for example, Pat Gillespie's, I believe, is using some SIP technology on, on his uh, marketplace, which are just walls that are built off-site and then brought uh, mm-hmm. in-site that are already insulated. This idea takes that a little further and tries to take all those, let's say it takes 10 pieces to put a housing uh, unit together. We'd like to bring those 10 pieces together and have them travel as one and have a more finished product with inside uh, the structure itself uh, so that it's more complete, uh, meaning plumbing, electrical, uh, and and be a very smart home as well and, and work with your smart device, uh, such as controlling your lights off your phone or controlling your thermostat while you're away off your smartphone, being able to know if there's carbon monoxide issues, which has recently been uh, an issue in the newspaper as of late. Mm-hmm. It'll give you an alarm on your smartphone that that's going on, especially if you have a dog in your house and you're worried about carbon monoxide. You want your dog to pass away, and it's, right. your, your, your smartphone can uh, tell you that. It can even go as far as today. A lot of people don't know in the back of their refrigerator there's a little data plug, and you plug into that data. If you design the home properly, it'll tell you that its ice maker is about ready to quit on you. Uh, and you actually get a, a warning that it's having some difficulties. So, I mean, appliances today are very smart. And as long as you design them up front, and that's the beauty of this, is we'll be able to continue to make this better and better as a product and then bring it and deliver it to first-tier, second-tier cities. And uh, we first need to start off in a third-tier city, which Lansing, Michigan, is a is a great incubator spot for something like this. So these would be apartments. And what size would they be? There's a good chance they'll be condominiumized up front, or they mm-hmm. may be apartments. Those details haven't been worked out. Um, so, But they'll range anywhere. The footprint on these will range anywhere from 400 to 500 square feet in footprint. And they can be chained together, meaning you can bring four boxes together times 400 and have 1,600 square feet. Or you can bring two boxes together, that one 500 and one uh, 400, and have 900 square foot one bedroom. So there's a lot of flexibility there as to how you bring these uh, cubes together, if you will. And one of the things, of course, that makes this special is you're not bringing these in from somewhere. You're going to build them. 
Yeah, we're going to build them right here. You know, initially, we're going to be able to build them in wall sections. We're going to build them like you normally would see any construction site. And the first building will go up with the size that we need, and we'll bring these panels in. And it'll look like a normal construction site. But as we have four buildings scheduled on this site, given that City of Lansing approves the special land use permit, uh, we have additional opportunities at Building 2, Building 3, and Building 4 to be progressive with this and to bring... Uh, let's say we have our first model has four different sections of walls we bring in and we join them together. And then in the second building, maybe we only bring two sections together. And in the third building, we bring a whole unit in as one and put it in place. So there will be a lot of uh, exploring and technology and, and making sure that all these things communicate. When we get done with that final product, we really hope to have a product that's transportable. Not transportable by truck, but we hope to have it transportable by train. We have nearby train tracks in the facility. We're in a heavy industrial site, and we can have the train literally stop, and we can load up the train uh, with our cargo and send it to any city we want in North America. Of course, we have a great train system uh, for that, and um, and that helps us with width uh, because these have to be wider than, let's say, a shipping container, which might be something that would somebody would ill picture because those are only 8 feet wide. Uh, these units will be 12 feet wide, and you can go down uh, the rails at 13 feet, as we understand it, and uh, send one of these uh, smart homes down the line, so to speak, uh, and have a foundation waiting for it and put it in what we call gap development. And there's an awful lot of gap development in, in North America where old buildings have been taken down and new buildings are needed. Uh, and uh, these are not, uh, you're not the first person to do these. We're seeing these in big cities around the world. Yeah. Right? Paris, London, uh, England itself uh, is doing a project, a high rise. It's going to be, you know, groundbreaking and, and set some records. Uh, all, Brooklyn, New York is also, as you reported, is also doing this. So one's a hotel, another one's uh, the mayor of Bloomberg put out a wonderful contest, had a bunch of architects. Uh, come up with some space that was under 500 square feet. And I think the award-winning space was 240 square feet, and uh, that's pretty small. But at the same time, there's a real need there in the Y generation and people that uh, don't want a lot of space, want more adventure in their life, don't want to have a house in the suburbs. That's not in their plan. Um, and so that's really an urban setting typically is where those people gravitate towards. They want to walk. They want to bike to work. They want to have a low a carbon footprint. They want to know their, that, that what they're living is is conscientious to the environment would lead. Um, and we're very lucky in Michigan to have so many natural resources located within 500 miles of us. And that, obviously, if we were building these in Nevada, uh, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be very conscientious of us to try to bring all those natural resources together and then send them out because those natural resources don't exist there. What's the timetable? Oh, well, I think the timetable will will move back and forth. Uh, we'd like to have the first building up in sometime 2015, given the right clearances from the city of Lansing, and, and have the first building up. And then after that one's done, bring the second generation on, then the third. And as I said, there's four buildings. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the location is right at the corner of Saginaw. Is that Cedar or Larch? That is That would be the corner of Prudent Street, which is a new street okay. we cut in when, when Motor Wheel gave up their frontage. Um, so it's corner of Prudent Street and Oakland Avenue. In Oakland, okay. Yeah, so it would be the 700 block yeah. of what would be considered uh, East Oakland Avenue. Okay. So a good central location on a nice day. You can easily you can walk uh, downtown if you want. Yeah, and, 0.9 uh, miles of capital. Is, is, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, a pleasant hike. Yeah. And uh, you also have an idea, and we just have less than two minutes to go. You got an idea f- uh, to fix, uh, to make uh, Oak park work both as a park but also for development yeah you know we we spent the last uh, 15 years working on that very thing taking away physical obsolescence and we believe our idea of taking away uh, the physical obsolescence issue that surrounded uh, prudent tech center is exactly what oak park should practice or the city should at least examine because they're reaping the uh, they're they're pulling the fruits of, off that tree right now um, they invested in Prudent Street, uh, the public did, and it's certainly the taxes have gone up 13-fold and are on mark to go up 20-fold. So here's a park that uh, suffers from the very same problem to, to the south, 
And uh, we've issued some plans to the city, and we'd like them to take a good long look at them because we think the park has been uh, neglected for far too long. And if you know where uh, uh, where Motor Wheel Lofts is on um, East on Oakland, it's right across the street from there, but. You can hardly get there from Motor Wheel because there's no light. We have 60 uh, dogs in the building, and it's absolutely impossible to do it safely at this point to get to the park, being it's on Saginaw Highway. Yeah, you know, if this, you know, it would be nice if uh, Oakland were two-wayed someday, but uh, this would at least get people uh, across the street if they yeah, uh, put a light there. way better wayfinding, and yeah. and uh, we think the park would um, would blossom with opportunity with uh, getting rid of the physical obsolescence that once possessed our property and no longer does. Very good. Well, Harry Hepler, thank you so much Thanks, for bro. being on City Pulse. I appreciate it. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, editor and publisher of Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. Uh, our next guest, Jay Kaplan, is uh, heads the uh, LGBT project at the uh, ACLU of Michigan, and uh, in that role, he has been uh, attending the big trial going on in Detroit right now before a federal judge that could well uh, decide the future of Michigan's uh, could help decide the future of Michigan's ban on same-sex marriage. Jay, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you. Pleasure. To- be here. Uh, Jay, uh, tell me about the the, uh, the tell me about the trial. Uh, electric atmosphere. What's it like? Well, I think what's unique about it, it's only the second time the issue of marriage equality and 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 what's unique about Michigan's case also is it's dealing with the issue of adoption. It's being it's being held in the form of a trial, and we're looking at the state's rationale for why same-sex couples haven't been able to adopt in Michigan and why they're denied the right to marry. And the state's rationale is essentially they think that children do best when they're raised by one mother and one father and that uh, that uh, same-sex parenting uh, isn't, is, is, isn't the optimal situation for children and or that there's not enough uh, sufficient studies on the subject uh, to to advocate for a policy change at this point in time. And so that's what all the expert testimonies is going to be focusing on. And there's been a lot of attention to that. The New York Times did a piece. Of course, we just saw a piece in the free press. But uh, this could be uh, a real knockout uh, punch uh, 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 to uh, stop these uh, people who <laughs> say there is a difference? Mm-hmm. I, 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 we certainly hope so. Um, I think uh, there's certainly flaws in some of the, the studies that have been done. I think mainly the, the one study that everybody's going to be looking at is the study that was done by Mark Regneris, who's a sociologist at the University of Texas. And um, he compared children who were raised by... Um, Parents who either came out as gay during their during uh, during uh, the marriage, or they were parents who were involved in a same-sex relationship during the marriage, to children who were raised uh, in a stable heterosexual opposite-sex couple, and and then you know no surprise found that that kids in a, the stable situation had better better outcomes. But you don't really have a comparable control group here, and thus that's the criticism of of that study. And that's what's that, that's the study that's been used by many opponents of marriage equality to deny same-sex couples the right to get married. Now, the, the uh, couple in this case, uh, two um, women, uh, uh, sued over the adoption issue, right. but the judge broadened it, didn't he? Right, right. They sued because they said, they, in essence, they said that uh, you know that they that they wouldn't be able to jointly adopt their child. That the way that judges are interpreting Michigan's adoption law, because Michigan's adoption law doesn't say anything about gay people or gay couples adopting, but they said the way that the judges would would interpret it, they wouldn't be able to adopt. And then Judge um, Friedman suggested they amend their complaint because he said, well, isn't it true if you were able to get married, then you would be able to jointly adopt uh, uh, in Michigan. And so they did amend their complaint to 
to challenge Michigan's prohibition on same-sex couples marrying. Uh, so as uh, someone who obviously hopes the judge uh, joins many other federal judges now in saying same-sex marriage, uh, that it shouldn't be banned by the Michigan Constitution, uh, do you think it's a, a good thing or uh, not that it is a jury trial? Well, it's not a jury trial. It's a, it's, it's a bench trial. A jury won't be deciding this. Leave, the judge will be deciding it. Yeah. I think it's good that he wants to get, um, you know, and, and get some of these people up under oath to testify and to look at all the factual evidence and maybe, you know, a, a, a strong opinion from the judge and and making reference to these studies and making findings about these studies. This could be very, very helpful in terms of marriage equality cases in other states. Um, I think the judge wants to render a strong opinion. Hopefully he's going to render an opinion in favor of marriage equality, and he wants to be able to back it up with, with, the, with the studies and uh, the information that, that, that's out there at this point in time. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, since he decided to uh, to have a full trial, we've had three uh, court decisions in other states, federal court decision, decisions, striking down you know, the denial of the right to marry and really being dismissive of the arguments made by the states. Now, those in Oklahoma and Utah and then just recently in Virginia, there wasn't any trial, and so they weren't having expert testimony. But they're pretty, you know, pretty much there is a consensus, at least from these federal courts, that, you know what, these conclusions, the, the, the rationales that are being offered by the states to deny same-sex couples the same right uh, as afforded to heterosexual couples, it just doesn't withstand constitutional muster. So it's almost, I mean, it's, it's good he's doing this, but it's almost like, well, isn't it almost, isn't it kind of behind what, what we're seeing around the country? You know, do we have to, do we have to put gay parenting on trial? Do we have to have a judge deciding whether an entire population of people are, you know, as fit parents and, and should be denied the right to, to be able to raise children? But I understand, I understand where he's coming from. I think he just wants to establish a strong factual record that will uh, support his opinion. Now, also, when he made the decision to do it uh, by trial, uh, there were uh, since then there have been several states uh, that have rung in on this very issue. Uh, Virginia being the most recent. So, uh, perhaps if he were making the decision today, he might have just uh, rendered a, a decision. Right. I, w- I was thinking that same thing too. That maybe he would have felt more comfortable at that time. Remember, at the time there, the complaint was amended. With in terms of uh, the marriage challenge, there there was just a handful of federal court challenges with regards to the issue of marriage equality. Since then, since the Windsor uh, United States Supreme Court decision about the Defense of Marriage Act, we're up to uh, you know more than four dozen federal and state challenges with regards to the right to marriage equality. So there's there's a lot of cases in the pipeline right now. And uh, if he does decide, uh, uh, he 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 could decide that yes, they can adopt, but he could not. He could not rule on the same-sex marriage part of it. Correct? He he could he could try to go that way. Although he seems to be tying the issue of the right to adopt with the issue of marriage. Um, I would be surprised if he just decided to. to focus on the issue of adoption but you're you're correct you're correct he could just he could just render a decision uh with regards to the right to adopt and if he does rule against uh, the ban on same-sex marriage in michigan then we get in line so to speak for the supreme court i presume yes yes uh, a favorable decision no doubt would be appealed by the attorney general uh and it would go to the sixth circuit court of appeals which is interesting because the sixth circuit uh, covers a number of states, including Michigan, and it covers Tennessee and Ohio and Kentucky. And recently we've had decisions uh, touching on marriage equality in Ohio, where Ohio was ordered to recognize out-of-state marriages for residents for the purposes of a death certificate. And just recently Kentucky, where a federal court ordered the state to recognize uh, legally married couples who got married out-of-state. Uh, so what what kind of timetable do you think uh, we are looking at now before the Supreme Court has to jump in again and make a decision? Well, you know, I think the thought was maybe 
even just a year ago that it might be five years, maybe ten years before the court was would be willing to take a case. But I think things are moving so much faster. And now that you have several cases that are that are up in the Circuit Court of Appeals and can probably expect some decisions this year, you know, some people are saying that maybe within the next term the United States Supreme Court would be willing to address the issue of marriage equality for 2014 to 2015 or maybe the following year. But the thought is that the court will wade into those waters within the next couple of years. Uh, uh, before we let you go, uh, of course, we got a, a, a big decision the governor of Arizona is facing. And by the time we air this interview, that decision may have been made, which is whether to veto the legislation that would allow businesses to discriminate against uh, uh, same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. Uh, your thoughts on that one, Jay? I think it's a ridiculous piece of legislation. Um, it's it, First of all, and it's not just limited to same-sex couples. It's allowing private business owners to discriminate against anyone based on if they have certain religious or moral beliefs. So if, we, if, if some people might be okay to say, well, I can deny you know, baking a cake for a same-sex couple who, who wishes to get married, then are we, are we also going to be okay? I'm going to deny providing services to somebody because of their race or because they're a Muslim or because they're a Christian and because I'm Jewish. You know, it, it, it just opens a whole can of worms. We have never carved out an exception to our civil rights laws based on individual religious beliefs. Religious institutions in operating their own religious activities, they have a right to discriminate because we have separation of church and state. But here we're not we're talking about non religious activity. We're talking about people acting, you know, as, as private individuals and we're giving them this sword, the sword to discriminate. It's it's unheard of. And I even believe if the governor were to sign this law, uh, uh sign this bill into law, it would be struck down by a higher federal court. It's it's an unheard of thing. And it's an attempt to carve out exemptions. Listen, if people, when people enter the realm of commerce, they're subject to various rules, building codes, zoning codes, payroll taxes, and including civil rights laws. You don't get an exemption based on your religious or moral beliefs from that. And um, the ironic thing is in Arizona, they don't have civil rights protections for gays and lesbians, just like in Michigan. So it's legal for, for, for LGBT people to be discriminated against in Arizona. And these, so the irony is to create a law with the intention of allowing people of, uh, you know, to, to be able to do so based on their religious beliefs. It's, it's also additionally ludicrous. Uh, well, as I said, we may know before this. Uh, I think it's until Saturday to decide. Yes, on yeah, it does sound like uh, though the pressure is building there, and 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 in some quarters from rather conservative business groups. Well, uh, economically, they understand this. People are not going to want to come to Arizona. Businesses are not going. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. It goes against values that that most of us hold that you treat people fairly. And once again, religious institutions always have the right in terms of their religious activities to decide who they want to work with, who, who, they, you know, who they want to provide services. We're not talking about this. We're talking about private individuals engaged in non-religious activity. You know, there's an economic argument, too, uh, behind the same-sex marriage bans. Uh, you know, and uh, tell us about that. Well, I, I look at the states that do allow same-sex couples to get married. The, the hundreds of million dollars in additional revenue that have been brought to their state. Uh, you know, when you look at economically, you want to attract talent, which will then uh, will breed uh, technology. And if you have a state that shows intolerance and is unaccepting of certain groups of people and is, un- is unwillingness to embrace diversity, people aren't going to want to come to your state. And Governor Snyder especially, given all the talk he's made about, you know, reinventing Michigan, creating jobs, should be paying attention to this economic argument. Uh, a sure way to, to, to attract the best and the brightest and to retain the best and the brightest in our state is to have policies that treat people fairly and treat people equally with dignity. And our, we as a state have been incredibly remiss through many of, it, of our current policies. All right. Well, Jay Kaplan from uh, the ACLU of Michigan, thanks so much, as always, for being on City Pulse. Oh, thank you for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure on
next guest is a funny guy who wants uh, to teach you how to be funny as well. His name is uh, Robert Jenkins, and welcome to City Pulse. Oh, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm just fine, thank you. And uh, we did a story about you today in our paper about a a seminar you're going to uh, be doing to teach people the art of uh, writing, writing jokes. Uh, and let me just mention, to, uh, so we don't forget about it at the end, this is going to be in Diamonddale beginning next Tuesday from 7 to 9 p.m., and you can find out more about it at Smitten Dust, that's S-M-I-T-T-E-N, Dust, D-U-S-T, dot, blogspot, dot, com. Robert, tell me a bit about your background. Well, uh, I'm 31 years old, I'm... Uh, practicing attorney uh, in the Lansing area. Well, I, that's I, funny on its own. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time I tell people that, they say, oh, you got lawyer jokes, huh? I got a few. <laughs> I got a few. But um, I've been doing stand-up. I started in July of 2012, and it was just, it was one of those things where I kind of wanted to uh, give it a try. People had always, always said I was funny. So I decided to give it a try, and I figured I would like post the videos for friends of mine, you know, because I haven't seen them keep in touch and stuff like that. And then I just loved it, and I've been doing it ever since. It's always been a lot of fun. It's a it's a great thing to do. And have you so ever just, have you ever taught a course in it before? No, I have not. I have never taught a course in in it, and that's part of the reason I designed the course kind of the way I did. I wanted to focus on joke writing. Primarily, because I feel like that's that's the area that's most most adaptable to different types of humorous situations, you know, uh, in your everyday life, or if you have to give a speech, or you know, you're doing some sort of presentation, you can start with a nice joke. Um, but I also brought in other other folks who've been doing stand-up comedy for a long time, you know, working comedians to focus on different aspects of stand-up and of the humor you know, the humor kind of concept, so. So what are the basics? What what do you have to be able to do to write a joke or tell a joke? Well, I think the the point of a joke is, you know, you have a setup and a punchline. And the purpose of the setup is to lead, you know, the re- whether it's a reader or the listener in one direction, and then the punchline takes them in a different direction to the point where it causes them to think that whatever the situation is, it's funny. I mean, the whole point is to gener- generate humor, generate laughter. So to, to tell a joke or to write a joke, Well, so, have... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. Uh, no, you can go ahead. Okay, so we got a joke in the, uh, a joke in the paper by Robert Jenkins. I'm thankful yeah. for both my parents because they taught me different things. My mom taught me to never hate anyone. My dad taught me how to ignore my mom. Right. So, so break that down for me. Okay, just just breaking that joke down. What you have, you know, it's a, you know, it's a kind of well-known premise or concept that both folks, uh, I mean, kids need both parents in their lives, and that's just kind of been accepted uh, as a truism by a lot of people. And I, I tend to believe that myself. However, there are certain instances where having both parents in your lives uh, can actually do you some harm. For instance, if both parents give you conflicting information or if both parents don't get along. So the purpose of, if you break that joke down, the setup, you know, I'm thankful for having both parents in my life because both parents will teach you different things. My mother taught me I should never hate anybody. So that's kind of the setup. And then, you know, if it was just a regular non-joke, I would add on some sort of thing that my dad taught me that was supposed to be beneficial. You know, my dad taught me, you know, how to fish or something of that nature. But the punchline is designed to take somebody in a different direction and thereby taking them in that different direction, they find it to be funny. So it's the surprise. It's kind of like the, I mean, it all goes back to slipping on the banana peel. It's the unexpected. Right. If you think of it in a way, it's kind of like a magic trick. When you think of a joke and a magic trick, they're kind of similar in a way that the punchline is kind of like the reveal. It's when they pull the rabbit out of the hat or they put the person back together uh, that they had supposedly sawed into. That's the purpose of the punchline, is to bring it kind of all the way back and add surprise, thereby you get the humor and the laughter. 
So tell me, uh, who do you admire these days? Who would you actually pay money to see? Uh, I pay money to see a lot of folks. Um, well, I grew up, I grew up listening to Richard Pryor a lot. Mm-hmm. He was my favorite comedian, uh, and I've moved on to see. I've seen Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle, um, Dave Landau is a guy that I um, admire a lot. He's he's kind of not well known, but he's been on TV a few times. But he's originally from Detroit, hmm. uh, and he's you know doing big things and and stuff like that. Um, I go to the comedy club every weekend when I can. So you learn a lot. The famous guys, you learn a lot from watching them. They give a good show. But there's also plenty of guys every weekend you go in and you see a guy who may not be, or a woman for that matter, who may not be well-known, but you still get a good show when the comedy is done right. So you're a lawyer. Do you ever try to get a laugh out of a judge? Uh, No. (laughs) You're not suicidal. uh, No, I'm not. That's not... Uh, that's not my goal. That's not my plan right there. I'm just on my P's and Q's. So. All right. Well, uh, if you're interested in learning how to write a joke and tell a joke, it's uh, it's a workshop called Can't Stop Laughing. It's four weeks long. It begins next Tuesday, March 4th, uh, at, in Diamonddale, of all places. That's pretty funny. And uh, you can find out more about it at smittendust.blogspot.com. Robert Jenkins, thanks so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to Impact Exposure. All right. Uh, you're listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Uh, it's time now to listen to the audio from the City Pulse Newsmakers TV show. And uh, our guests uh, uh, Sunday were the uh, state representatives from Lansing and East Lansing, Andy Shore and Sam Singh. We check in with them every three months and always find out some new stuff. And why don't we listen to that right now? This is City Pulse Newsmakers, a weekly look at the issues and the people behind them in Greater Lansing. Brought to you by City Pulse, Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. And now, here's your host, editor and publisher, Burl Schwartz. Good morning. The state has a almost a billion dollar surplus. What should we do with it? Uh, there's a group that wants to put uh, a ballot proposal on the uh, ballot this fall for a part-time legislature. What do, what do you think about that? And what about uh, the state regulating BWL? Those are some of the questions we're going to be asking our guests today. Uh, state Representative Sam Singh from East Lansing and Andy Shore from Lansing. And with me today is our uh, associate uh, uh, publisher, rather, Mickey Hurton. Uh, let's start, uh, Andy, let's start with you on this issue of uh, what should we do with this uh, surplus because uh, you have proposed uh, a, a tax break. And tell us about that and why you think that's the way to go with at least some of this money. Sure. Well, I think that there is, it's about a billion dollars, like you said. Um, about three quarters of it is one time money, money we can count on for this year, and the other quarter or so, the other $350 million is money we can expect ongoing. I think we need to, first and foremost, uh, backfill those things that were cut, our education, uh, our uh, local government services. You know, you drive on a road and you can't get, you can't get it salted now, and later on we won't be able to get it, uh, the potholes fixed. Um, I think we need to put money into those areas that, that we cut, um, our seniors, uh, our middle class, and that's where my proposal comes in. There, there had been several people talking about cutting the income tax, and when you do that, you know, the more money you make, the more money you get back. Uh, I believe that the surplus was created by removing tax credits and things from the middle class, by taxing pensions and others. And what we need to do is increase the, the personal exemption. There's a certain amount that, that you can deduct right off the bat from your taxes. And I think if we increase that, then everybody is getting the same benefit. Um, I put a pretty small increase in the personal deduction. So it would have cost about $30 million. So people would be getting back, you know, $50 or so. Um, and I'm, I'm fine going higher. But I think that we need to put some money into that while still you know, reinstating some of the tax credits that were eliminated, making sure that, that our students are getting a, a good enough increase in per pupil, uh, making sure that our, our cities and townships are getting 
money for local services. So do I think it's a combination. Sam, do you support his proposal? Well, I think of all the proposals that are out there that are looking at um, some type of tax relief for individuals, Andy's is a, a very progressive uh, one, and I think that's kind of the area we should uh, move towards if we need to have that compromise with the, the other part of the party. You know, right now, I think when we're talking about any of these, they're t talking about maybe doing a rebate check. I heard it one time for $50 back to everybody. To me, as I think, the, if you talk to anybody, uh, they want their roads fixed immediately. Uh, so this winter has been a horrible winter for them. They want their schools, uh, the money to go back into their schools. Uh, there are, you know, higher classroom sizes. We're laying off teachers. Uh, schools are closing. We've got now a tripled amount of schools uh, in deficit under this governor. And so they want to see that money going there. And that's where I would say right now, you know, I don't think it's time for us to be doing tax relief uh, to individuals. I think it's time for us to be investing as much of our money back into those areas that we cut over the last uh, decade. But I, as you have to have compromise uh, when you've put together a, a formula, uh, and if there is a need to do a tax relief uh, proposal, I think Andy's is one of those areas that I could find agreement mm -hmm. with. You yeah. called it progressive, which <laughs> seems to me to kiss of death with the legislature <laughs> we have. I mean, is it, what kind of support will you get? I mean, is it any likelihood that it will happen? You know, there's, there are several proposals on the table. <clears throat> the funny thing is, uh, a few years ago, when the Republicans did a, a tax cut, this was one of the things they did. Uh, it was a Republican bill from uh, one of the, their marginal members that, that did exactly what, what my bill proposes to do. So I do think it's progressive, and I think that the Republicans recognize that, that an equal across the board um, tax cut is a good idea, especially when the governor in his own state of the state calls for helping you know, those who need it the most. Um, now, like Sam said, you know, there's, there's a lot of proposals out there. Yeah. Many are not as progressive as this, um, and I, I think that's a, a conversation we'll continue to have. But several of the Republicans have their own plans. The governor has his plan. Um, so there's really no consensus at this point. Yeah. And, you know, the, you touch on an interesting issue, which is uh, the governor's budget. And who's he going to have more trouble getting to support it, the Democrats or the <laughs> Republicans? Well, I think a number of the things that we as Democrats have been fighting for for the last three years, he's actually put into uh, his budget. Uh, you know, I said uh, jokingly the other day, you know, I wish every year uh, was an election year for this governor because then he would actually be doing things that were good for the state versus for uh, the special interests that fund this governor. Uh, but, you know, uh, I do think he's going to have some challenge with some of his caucus members uh, in the House, especially on uh, his tax proposals. But I do think the investments that he's putting in uh, both for, uh, there's been, I think, some, uh, you know, bipartisan uh, support for those. There's people like m myself who feel he hasn't gone far enough. You know, there was a group, Business Leaders for Michigan, that asked for $100 million uh, for higher education. Mm -hmm. He only put in $80 million. Yeah. You know, we all remember what he did three years ago when he cut public universities 15%. So our universities aren't even back to that square one, which I thought with the surpluses that we have, this was the time for us to get back to fully funding uh, our, K, our higher education institutions based on where he at least came in as, as governor, and he wasn't able to do that. Yeah, and I'll throw in, I can't take credit for this, someone else said this, so I'm going to repeat it. Um, when it comes to the governor versus the Republicans in the legislature, and you're right, there's not, you know, they don't necessarily agree. If this budget had a, a name of Mark Shower or Jennifer Granholm on it proposing it, the Republicans would be calling it irresponsible and this and that. <laughs> um, but because it's Rick Snyder, yeah. you know, it's a tepid response. You know, I, I think, I do think there are very good pieces to it. I'm very happy that, you know, Lansing schools could potentially get, you know, $100, $110 per pupil increase. Yeah. Now, for me, that's also getting it about halfway back to where it was sure. when Rick Snyder took office. So I'm very happy about that in this budget. But you have to put that in perspective. We're getting back, you know, if you dig the whole eight feet, we just filled back in, you know, five feet. So, you know, I'm still I'm happy about the budget, better than the alternative of more cuts. But, um, you know, we still need to do more work. But you gentlemen raised the, the issue of roads. And I think you're right. When this thaws, when, when we get into the spring, the screaming from sure. people. I mean, even now it's awful. What's going to happen? Well, again, I mean, this governor put together a plan, uh, you know, it's $1.2 billion. And on day one, his own party called it dead on arrival. Senator Randy Richardville called it dead on arrival. He can't even coalesce his own uh, party. And that's where I've really challenged this governor. He needs to lead. He needs to lead on this issue. Uh, you know, on this budget, he doesn't really lead on groats. 
he says, you know, we're not, he doesn't talk about the bold type of plan. I mean, we should be talking about $1.6 billion worth of investment into roads and into infrastructure. He doesn't even attempt to try to do that in this budget like he did last time. And so I feel to some degree he's been neutered by his own party. Uh, and we haven't seen his his vocalness on this. Now he'll complain about the roads. Sure. Say we need to do more on the roads. But uh, you know, I think maybe he's resigned himself that he doesn't have the political capital to get things done in this town. And and there's a, in the Senate right now, I believe there's a proposal to spend a uh, hundred million dollars to fill potholes. Do you support that? It was off. It was an off the cuff remark by uh, by Senator Papa George. He just kind of said it in the meeting. Yeah. I think we should do that. That but, would take care of Lansing, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but I am I'm hearing rumors of a of a, a snow supplemental. Um, I support that, you know, completely. I think that. As soon as this thaws and fluffs up and, you know, whatever, we're still going to have to plow it again because when it gets warmer, it's all going to fluff up like we did at Lansing. But the roads are going to be crazy. They're going to be broken. Um, we're going to have to have a supplemental. We've got this much money, especially when you have $650 you know, million in the one-time funding. We're going to have to take a big chunk of that and put it towards um, backfilling the budgets for our, our cities, our counties, the state. You know, they're, they're going to spend all the rest of their budget on salt, which they may not be able to get a hold of. They're going to have nothing when the potholes come. We're going to be in big trouble. You're listening to Impact Explorer. You're listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Let's get back to uh, our interview with uh, State Representative uh, Sam Singh from East Lansing and Andy Shore from Lansing. Uh, Andy, you and I and, and Mickey attended uh, the Michigan Press Association's uh, legislative luncheon, which Thank uh, you for that. Were, yeah, you're welcome, <laughs> where the governor spoke. A room full of publishers and editors. I didn't hear one tough question. Uh, is that indicative of the election we're facing? Is he going to uh, get away uh, without being really grilled? I hope not. I hope not. Um, and you know, I I can't speak for what your colleagues in the in the media are going <laughs> to do. I think that there will be some some harder questions. Hopefully, moving on. But the reality is, the governor is going to face a lot of questions from his constituents. You know, when he first ran for office, he didn't tell anybody he was going to tax seniors' pensions, and he didn't tell anybody he was going to cut education or give a, you know, big, you know, corporate business tax uh, cut. He didn't. None of that came up. Um, he has to live on his record now. So, I mean, I, I greatly hope that the media, you know, calls him on that and says, you know, this is what you did. Um, you eliminated the homestead property. You know, you cut the homestead property crack, uh, tax credit. You cut the heating credit. You cut adoption. All of these things. You know. Now you have to run on that record. Doesn't he also, though, have the opportunity to run on just the generally improving economy? I mean, I find the irony that it, it's the auto industry that in so sure. many ways has returned this state to at least some measure of normalcy, but, and he'll take the credit. But this is why the media is not really doing a, a good enough <coughs> job uh, on this, and, you know, it's probably indicative of that, of that forum, but we've seen that uh, already, right? You know, here's a governor who claims that, you know, his proposals uh, have actually created jobs. We've had 200,000 plus jobs and he acknowledges that they come from manufacturing, but where did that manufacturing right. rebound come from? It came from a direct and federal investment by President Obama. Many Republicans opposed to it. We remember his standard bearer, the person he supported for president, Mitt Romney, saying let these companies go bankrupt. You know, he wanted to oppose that. And he's running on it like he's taking credit for it. And they're union jobs, most of them. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, that's, the, that's, I think, the real struggle that we're having here. You know, I had to challenge a reporter the other day because, you know, the governor's people always use 2009 because that was the worst point of unemployment. And then they talk about how much growth there is. He wasn't governor until January 2011. So why does he use the point a year and a half away? Because it makes his employment numbers look sure. so much better. And by and large, you know, these a uh, lot of our, our media has cut back on the number of staff, and so they just write bullet points taken off of, uh, you know, press releases. Yeah, they're a big part of the unemployed. <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are. But, yeah. it, but it's that type of thing that we need, and that's why I think, you know, I think you're going to hear that from individual citizens. You're going to hear that from community groups. And I'm hopeful that the media will begin to do this challenging of the governor and the rhetoric that he's saying. But, you know, they talk about he wants to, us to applaud him for his investments in education. But you go to any classroom and you ask that teacher, do you feel like you have more resources today than you did four years ago? There's not a single teacher anywhere in the state that will tell you that. Well, there's more money for education because we've taken care of pensions and benefits, but there's less in the classroom. And it, it wouldn't seem a difficult distinction to get get. To you know, people to buy, but they, they seem oblivious to it. 
But again, he hasn't reached over 50% approval rating. Uh, you know, he spent $2 million already in his campaign. He hasn't gotten over 50% approval rating. He's been hovering around that, that point in time. And, you know, I think that's why he's very vulnerable. And that's why you're seeing this really pushback from the administration and his allies, the Chamber of Commerce and others, just pushing this point like, oh, he's put more money into education. Well, the governor may not be above 50%, but uh, probably a lot of people got to know your candidate because uh, the UAW's Bob King uh, apparently suggested to Gretchen Whitmer that he sh she should run uh, instead of uh, Mark Schauer. Are you concerned at this point? And you've been traveling around the state dealing with fundraising. Are you concerned at this point that your guy isn't catching on? Well, again, I think we have to remember that <coughs> we're still in February. You know, campaigns like this uh, start really in the summer and into the fall. And so this is a time for, uh, for Mark Schauer to be raising money. Uh, for getting his name out, uh, getting to know the people, and building that well, campaign infrastructure. Is that infrastructure. happening as you go around well, the state? It absolutely is happening. Uh, you know, I think the, where you have a person like Mark Schauer, who's very well known on the west side of the state, his challenge is now making sure he gets known out into Metro Detroit, uh, northern part. I know he's headed to the UP uh, this week to do a UP tour, and so. But again, we've got a lot of time uh, between now and the election. <laughs> absolutely, between now and election time to really get his message out. And I think he'll have the resources um, to be able to do that. You know, I think, I think he'll have the money. The, I mean, the reality mm -hmm. is that people have to understand, you know, we don't have eight members of the DeVos family that could each write a million-dollar check in our party. You know, we really are the party of, of the working people in the middle class, and we are, we're putting our dollars in. You know, I'm, I've given to Mark, um, and a lot well, of people But then are. you've got the, you know, the head of the UAW, uh, apparently I, not falling into step. Honestly, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily that's the case. I think that... Many people wanted Gretchen to run for a lot of things for a long time before Mark got into the race, and I think that there were just ongoing conversations. You know, maybe he called her and said, "You, in, you, you know, are you interested?" And she said, "No." But I think we're all we're all very comfortable with Mark Shower. He's going to have the resources to do this. He's he's the people are paying attention, and it, and they have got an alternative to the governor. And and I let's think take it, it down a level, though. How about on the, the legislative level? Because it, it's great to look at. Governor, but sure. I talked to a lobbyist yesterday, and she suggested that the Democrats could win the House. I was skeptical, but it would change the dynamic in government here in the state. What do you gentlemen see? You we, know, the real likelihood. I mean, we can win the House. We can win the House. I mean, having having Mark Shower, having Gary Peters on the ticket, these are going to draw people out. You know, the possibility of a minimum wage. We're going to we're going to get our people out. You know, what we focus on in a gubernatorial year is making sure that, that the folks who, who are affected by these policies are coming out. And we're going to see teachers. We're going to see, I think we're going to see people all around the state. In my office, are I Are there enough swing districts, though? Oh, yeah. There are. So, you know, I'm the finance chair for my caucus on, sure. on top of being, you know, obviously the representative for the 69th uh, district. I'm going across the state, meeting with candidates, uh, making sure that we have those people ready in those swing yeah. districts. And what it does require us to do, obviously, is make sure we've got great candidates. And uh, our filing deadline is on April 22nd, and I can come in <laughs> after that and let you know exactly yeah. who's there, uh, because we've got some great candidates coming out of local government who've been problem solvers, who have actually been doing things in on the local level. And, you know, they're going to be running against Republicans who have, you know, increased uh, pension taxes, sure. who've cut education, who have not necessarily helped our state grow. And they're going to have that record to run against. And so, whereas in sometimes we would not want somebody running against an open seat because that person doesn't have a record, we'd rather run against these Republicans who've been here for the last uh, two terms who actually have a record of, of damaging the state and its economy. But, but uh, as often happens in these off-year elections, uh, when you think in national terms, uh, there's a, a reaction against Washington and the administration, and uh, and it appears to me Americans for Prosperity have successfully saddled Gary Peters with this uh, screw-up uh, over uh, introducing Obamacare. Uh, are, are you worried about uh, maybe Obama's not going to, maybe Obama's going to hurt? 
your local candidates. I, I think we have to look at Virginia, you know, not to leave the state for a moment, but Virginia just had a set of special elections for uh, their Senate. Two uh, special elections. The Republicans went all in on Obamacare. That was their only message. It wasn't that we have a plan to do something different, but Obamacare is not working. This was in the in January, uh, February, early February time frame. So this was during the height of, you know, the snafus with the website yeah. and, and so forth. And in both, in both <coughs> special elections, Democrats uh, won. And so I, I think if Americans for Prosperity, the Republicans think they're going to run on Obamacare, uh, they're going to lose. Because by the time we get to November, you know, obviously the website's already fixed. We're seeing uh, every month You've the number of new people. Signed three up million uh, signed up in, in, at the end of January. You know, so we're seeing all of these uh, increases. And so I think that's going to be less of a, of a, of a storyline uh, coming into the election. And I think people are going to take a look at what they see. Right now there is an anti-incumbent feel. Uh, and I think that also plays up for the president, but that also plays up here. If you look at any of the polling, uh, incumbent Republicans in the legislature aren't faring too well either. So uh, I think there will be that sense of kind of throw the bums out type of attitude, <laughs> and you might see some of those uh, those Republicans. Not you as the bums, yes. right? Yeah. 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 The other bums. Right. <laughs> but that's the sense of I'm Burl Schwartz here on the Impact 89FM, and uh, let's return to our interview with Sam Singh and Andy Shore. Let's so. turn to uh, BWL. Uh, Senator Rick Jones from Grand Ledge is uh, apparently pushing for state regulation of uh, BWL and presumably other municipal utilities. Sam, you've been critical of BWL's performance. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about whether the state should be regulating BWL? Well, again, I don't know if we need to go that far. Um, you know, I think right now there's a set of steps that need to happen locally uh, for uh, for the Board of Water and Light. You know, I'm waiting to see both uh, responses from the internal review as well as the community review uh, before saying that there should be some additional uh, oversight by the Public Service Commission. I do think there are a few things that have to happen immediately. Uh, one of the things we've realized with uh, you know over a third of uh, the ratepayers being outside of the city of Lansing, not having any board voice, I do think it's uh, it's imperative that a charter amendment be made and that outside seats uh, be added uh, to the um, uh, Board of Water and Light to represent places like East Lansing, uh, Delta Township, Meridian Township, and other places. Uh, Nathan Triplett, uh, mayor of East Lansing, has recently put a proposal in this week uh, that will increase it by five. Uh, I think that's a great starting point for the conversation. So I think that has to happen. And then I do think there's some internal things. You know, I, I've been very critical of the communication department uh, at the Board of Water and Light. I do think they need to kind of clear house uh, over there, make sure that there is some significant changes. And if they decide, hey, we need to keep these people, then tell me what's going to happen differently. Uh, the next uh, set of emergencies. And so, to me, I think there's some internal things that have to happen. There's some things that can happen from a, a board governance before we get as far as, as Senator Jones wants to take this conversation. Now, when we ask you about cleaning house over there, you stop short of saying they need to fire Steve Serkayan, the head of communications. Uh, it, are, is it just that uh, you assume everybody knows what you mean? Or? Well, again, again, see, when you talk about very specific individuals, that's now a management decision and that is now a, a board decision. Again, right now I think everyone can tell you, you don't need an internal review or an external review. Uh, communications was poor. Uh, we had hearings in the legislature and you compare the communication strategy of Board of Water and Light to consumers or DTE, I mean it paled in comparison. Uh, obviously there were some other operational things that Board of Water and Light did really poorly that those other municipal, I mean those other uh, <coughs> utility companies, private utility companies did better. Uh, but again, so I'm not going to get into which staff people have to go. That's a management decision. But if you don't make very dramatic changes in uh, communications and who's doing the communications for you, I don't think you're going to regain the trust from a lot of people, especially those that are in the suburban areas. Here's my question about the suburban areas though. So if you don't get seats on the board, what do you do then? And you don't get your power from BWL, you go to consumers, which charges more. So, I mean, what kind of deal, what kind of leverage do you have there? I mean, you could say, fine, we won't go to BWL. We'll let our rate payers, our citizens pay 15 or 20% more for their power. I mean, BWL is a sweet deal for the folks in East Lansing or Delta. I mean, yeah, from I'd take it for in a heartbeat if I could get it. Right, but again, you want to make sure that there is the, uh, the systems in place to make sure. sure that that's a reliable uh, source of 
of electricity. And obviously we showed in this crisis that there is a point where they don't have all their systems in place. I'm just so saying it's a weak position to say, well, if you don't give me those seats, I'm going to go here and pay more. No, but again, I think there's other all things right. that could happen from a legislative standpoint. I think Rick Jones' proposal to have the Public Service Commission oversee mm -hmm. this uh, public utility is the next step. There are a lot of points of leverage, but I, again... If they don't expand the board, or well, you know, I when think is it the I, next step? Well, to me, I think there will be a number of people in, in my communities that are in the suburban areas, if they don't see some good faith effort to expand that board to a more regional board, that will look to the legislature to solve their problems. But it's I still going to be a rate issue. It's still going to be a money issue, right? I don't think there are, I don't. I don't think that's going to be... It's not one or the other. I think... I think it's going to be an issue of charter amendment to add the other communities, mm -hmm. and if that doesn't happen, there could be a, an issue at our level in the legislature to require. Well, I'm not saying it's a bad added. idea. It just seems like you know, yeah. you know, no, I, I'll I hold my breath till I turn purple. You know, sure. well, it's it, the whole thing to me is a little. It's it's different because I actually understand. I do. Th I believe that the other communities should have a voice. You know, if I lived mm -hmm. in East Lansing and I, you yeah. know there was no one, I get that. But I live in Lansing. And I had no power for five days, and I had eight, and you people. Had a voice. <laughs> I had eight people on the board. So there yeah. is a communications issue. And, what, well, and there's also the issue, I think, of uh, how much money from DWL is going to the city of Lansing, even though more than a third of the ratepayers are outside. Uh, does, is that something that needs to be examined as well? One of the things I asked the uh, community review team to do is to benchmark uh, the payment in lieu of taxes that are happening here in mm, Lansing. Compare that to other municipal areas. I do think that there is some level of payment in lieu of taxes that should occur. The question is, is this the right amount? And we've not really benchmarked that to other communities. So I think that's a, a, a part of the conversation mm -hmm. that has to happen. But I do well, also, should some of that money be going to East Lansing and Delta Township? And well, again, Meridian if we Township. can make the case that there are um, you know, facilities right. that are there that are being used and so forth, I think maybe that can be a conversation. But I don't think you should just get revenue from the utility based on just because you're a ratepayer. Okay. Uh, to me, I think you have to have um, you know, some level of uh, structural investment, and that's what I think the city of Lansing has been um, trying to make the case sure. for for their, for their revenue. So. Let's turn to an issue that pro probably won't get on the ballot, uh, but it may, but it's a good issue, which is should Michigan have a part-time legislature? And I didn't realize until this proposal came along we're one of the few with a full-time legislature. Yeah. I don't want to put you guys out of work, but what do you think, uh, Andy? I, I'm not supportive of a part-time legislature. We right now have, have a term-limited legislature where reps can serve up to six years, senators up to eight years, um, and I think that's already put a lot of the power into the hands of the administration, into the hands of the lobbyists. Um, I, think, I think if you say that we can only be in session for 60 days, we get paid $35,000 a year, you know, I, I look at my life. Um, I, I do this full time, and I mean, I am every day of the week and weekends and nights. You know, I, it's, it's hard with, with kids. You make that part time, I have to find a full time job, still be able to have, you know, 60 days of the year, potentially coming back to get called back, make, get paid $35,000 for that, so I need to, to have income for my family. But that's uh, a personal thing. I think, but, any, but, but anybody's going to go through that. Right, but other states seem, uh, most states seem to make that work. But that's where the conflict of interest happens in these other states right. that are much more dramatic than you see here in Michigan. When you have to work for an employer full time, and then you part of your time you go up to the capital, and so you begin to see this where you'll have whether it's a business group or a labor group, they'll you know have people on their and payroll. Labor groups in and, particular, and, and then they'll go up to the capital yeah. and then they'll work. You know, so again now. I think if you had somebody who was 100% dedicated to the job, uh, who's being you know compensated for that job, we should have them be an uh, independent voice for the people. But as soon as you do this, uh, what you do is you remove the power uh, from the legislature, the people's power. You put it in the hands of the governor and in the hands of the lobbyists. We've already seen that with term limits. The lobbyists have become so much more powerful. Uh, special interest groups have become so much more powerful. And that's what you're going to see in a part-time legislature. That's why a very small group of people you know, funded by, you know, a very small group of very ultra-conservative uh, uh, funders are pushing this. This is not a grassroots 
piece of, of, of ballot initiative. This is a, you know, a ultra-conservative group of people who are trying to push an agenda. They're so ultra-conservative that the conservative Michigan Chamber of Commerce already yes. came out yeah. and said that this was, you know, a bad <laughs> idea. Yeah. But that's this type of small group that's trying to take over politics and state by state, and they're trying to do that here in Michigan. All right, well, we, yeah, go ahead. President, I understand in many other states what happens is you have 60 days of session to do the budget, then the governor calls them back continually to do different issues. So And they tend to work all year yes, anyway. and they I work mean, all year, and their staff is all year. The other piece of this proposal that's dangerous is limiting the number of staff. I think it's 150 or something total staffers. You know, if people are expecting their government to help them at all, this proposal is, I mean, it, this is going to flush it down the toilet, as, uh, as Grover Norquist said many years ago. This is going to, we help so many people. I respond to so many emails, uh, you know, all these neighborhood associations and everything. It's, you're not going to have any way to, to be in contact with your legislator. It will be very tough. All right, we're going to give you about 30 seconds. Tell us about uh, how you're going to make life better for people who hate those anonymous election robocalls. Well, well, we fought, we fought a bill last year. We wanted to see all this, this dark money, you know, these ridiculous calls. Um, we wanted to know who those donors are, but we lost that fight last year. Um, this year, we're going to make sure that when you get that call, they have to say at least who they are. Americans for Prosperity or, you know, Citizens for Better Government. Uh, when, they passed, when, we, when they passed law last year, the governor signed. It left big gaps on when they'd have to do that. I got an amendment passed to a bill two days ago where starting 60 days before the primary, right through the general election, somebody calls you or you see a TV ad, they have to say who it is, what the group is that's sponsoring that. All it's right, not we'll as good as it could be, but we'll yeah. take it for now. Very good. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. That's our show for today. Thanks uh, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You're listening to Impact Exposure on Well, that's our interview with Sam Singh and Andy Shore, state representatives from uh, East Lansing and Lansing. And that's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with you next week. I'm Burl Schwartz. Good night. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89 FM.